Welcome to the Bigger Pockets Money Podcast, where we interview David Stein from Money for the Rest of Us and talk about the state of the economy, asset classes, including some we've never discussed before, and what to do if you're overwhelmed with your investing options. Hello, hello, hello. My name is Mindy Jensen, and with me as always is my fellow Rest of Us co-host, Scott Trench. Thanks, Mindy. Great to be here. Scott and I are here to make financial independence less scary, less just for somebody else, to introduce you to every money story because we truly believe financial freedom is attainable for everyone, no matter when or where you're starting. That's right. Whether you want to retire early and travel the world, go on to make big-time investments in assets like real estate, start your own business, or learn investing principles from investors who have managed tens of billions of dollars in assets, we'll help you reach your financial goals and get money out of the way so you can launch yourself towards your dreams. Scott, today's money moment is, are you traveling internationally? If you have an unlocked phone, consider purchasing a SIM card at your destination instead of using your cell phone carrier's international plan. Local SIM cards typically offer much better rates and larger data and allowances than U.S. carriers. And this is actually a really timely tip because my daughter is getting ready to go international and she doesn't have an international plan. So thank you to our producer for sharing that because I need that. Uh, do you have a money tip for us? Email moneymoment at biggerpockets.com. All right, Scott, I am super excited to bring back David Stein from Money for the Rest of Us. This is a great episode. We talk about a lot of things. I want you to listen to this episode today. And uh, we're talking about annuities near the end. This is a four-letter word in the investing community. However, uh, maybe it's not. And David has a really great way to think about them, to look at them. And I am going to be rethinking my uh, my position on annuities after his description. Definitely time for some uh, some education and deep dives into what that all means. Yeah, I, I think he's got a great take on the economy. I think he's got a great take on portfolio management. And uh, like you mentioned, I think uh, at, in this episode, you and I kind of maybe finish uh, the start of a process that has transformed annuities from a bad word that we're going to stay completely away of to a tool with certain specific use cases for certain specific individuals. The dream of owning a vacation home can be daunting. From finding the best guests, to the maintenance, to organizing the cleaners after every guest day. With Vacasa, they make that dream into a reality. As a full-service vacation home management company with vacation homes in key destinations across the U.S., they know a thing about how to make owning a vacation home easy and profitable. On top of proactive property maintenance visits by professional local teams, a hospitality-driven booking platform, and around-the-clock support, Vacasa earns homeowners an average of 20% more revenue from their vacation homes. Vacasa is always thinking of ways to simplify the vacation homeowning experience by putting your home to work for you. If you're looking to make more from your vacation home, work with the reliable property manager, and finally have peace of mind, partner with Vacasa at vacasa.com slash biggerpockets. That's vacasa.com slash biggerpockets. You're trying to close on your next rental, so why is your insurance company dragging its feet? With long lead times and never-ending paper forms, it's no wonder it takes forever to finally get a policy. Modern investors deserve better. They deserve Steadily.com. At Steadily.com, you'll get fast, affordable landlord insurance available online 24-7 in just a few clicks. You can even get next-day coverage, which takes just minutes, by the way, to obtain. And you can do it all from your phone. Steadily was founded by landlords who created insurance products tailored to the unique needs of this industry. It's their sole focus, and that's why landlords nationwide consistently rate them 4.8 out of 5 stars. So whether you've got a single-family, short-term, or multifamily portfolio, Steadily.com can secure the best coverage at the best price to protect your properties. Discover how Steadily can save you both time and money on your rental property insurance. Visit Steadily.com for a commitment-free quote tailored to your needs today. When it comes to financial guidance, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When Mindy and I want to upgrade our wallets, we turn to NerdWallet. Scott's right. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, Mindy and I were paying for vacations in cash, missing out on miles, and not even knowing what we're leaving on the table. But now we're flying through the skies for free, thanks to our new cards with more miles and upgrades than ever. So if you want more travel rewards, 
hotel upgrades, or airport lounge access, no matter where you go next, let NerdWallet help you make it happen with a killer travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at NerdWallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval, and terms of each credit card issuer apply. David Stein teaches people about money, how it works, and how to invest it in his popular podcast, Money for the Rest of Us. Money for the Rest of Us is Stein's primary platform for teaching thousands of individuals about money, investing, and the economy. The show has been featured in Business Insider, Forbes, and U.S. News and World Report. David, welcome back to the Bigger Pockets Money podcast. I'm so excited to talk to you. How have you been? Oh, wonderful. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me back. David, for those of us who didn't hear you on episode 80, all the way back in 2019. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your podcast? Sure. So my background is institutional investing. So I spent over 15 years as an asset manager working mostly with endowments and foundations. I was a chief portfolio strategist at our, our firm. We, we managed over $20 billion in assets at the time. Uh, but I, I sort of was in my mid-40s and was tired of being a money manager and wanted to try retiring early and seeing what that was like. And so I did that. And as part of that, I, I realized I missed teaching about investing in the economy. So I launched Money for the Rest of Us in 2014. And it, it's a weekly show and, and it's expanded. We, we have the free podcast. We have a, a premium membership community where we provide additional education. We have some other software tools called Asset Camp. And, and now it's it's very much a family business. So both my son's uh, our partners and we we work together and our daughter uh, works part-time she edits the podcast so uh, we were enjoying teaching and helping others while learning about business so I love it your podcast has such a great name money for the rest of us how did you come up with that and how does it sum up your mission as an educator uh, the name came from uh, a really good marketer Bernadette Jiwa who's a friend of mine she's based in Australia and uh, she just wrote me one day and says, you need to write a book. And here's the title, Money for the Rest of Us. And I thought, oh, that, that is actually a really good title. Uh, I wrote a book and realized I have no one that will actually buy the book because I don't have a platform or an audience. So it was around that time that I, you know, podcasting was getting more popular as people had free data plans on their phone. And so I launched the podcast to basically grow an audience and teach and ultimately wrote a second book with that title. The, the, you know, I didn't come up with a name, but you know, as it evolves, to me, the rest of us would be those that don't work on Wall Street. So it's individual investors. It's those that are just trying to understand the world of finance and money and the economy and you know, don't have really an informational edge. We're just, we're just, we're all on this investment journey together. And that's sort of, what it, it, it conveys is it's it's the rest of us trying to figure it out. So um, how has your relationship with money changed maybe since the last time we talked? How Has anything evolved or, or has your viewpoint shifted or anything? Yeah, I think I'm even more patient. So since we spoke last, we, we had a pandemic, as you know, and we had central banks be even more proactive in com combating the the economic turmoil. And so we've since then, like immediately. So if you recall, the pandemic was March 2020. That's when it really, everything shut down. And that next month, the, the Federal Reserve was out buying bonds. They were buying non-investment grade bonds. So junk bonds that had been formerly investment grade, it got downgraded. And they were providing massive liquidity and so, you know, my approach to investing has always been to be willing to make adjustments if risks go up. And so in our model portfolio examples, for example, we, we pulled back risk, we reduced equity exposure, but then within three months, we had this massive rally. And so I'm much more wary uh, of how quickly central banks are willing to act to avoid really market turmoil. And so in that environment... You, you don't want to make a whole lot of changes. You want, to, you want to understand what drives asset class returns. And you know, especially if you're a younger investor, you can ride out many of these storms. And even as an older investor, it doesn't make 
a lot of sense to take extreme positions either in or out of the market. We can make adjustments. And, and I've always invested that way, but I'm even more wary of what, what they call fighting the Fed. Like you, you don't want to fight the Fed because they basically, we had $15 trillion of money outstanding, if we call that cash, checking and saving savings accounts. And, and now we have $23 trillion of money outstanding. And if we want to know why housing prices popped and everything else went up dramatically, it's the amount of liquidity and cash that flowed into the system as a re result of, of quantitative easing, the buying of bonds by central bank, along with massive uh, federal budget deficits. You know, you need both in order to create money and create wealth. It's just given to people that they went out and spent. And that dramatically has changed the financial markets. And, and we're still seeing the repercussions of that. Yeah. So, okay. So, so low interest rates, massive federal government spending and quantitative easing, which for those who aren't aware is when the Federal Reserve buys bonds, usually from institutions, um, and injects cash into those institutions' balance sheets, thereby uh, increasing the money supply here. And so that that inflated asset values over the last decade or so. And what do you, how are things changing for you now that that has stopped now that we're seeing interest rates rising and we're seeing, you know, uh, monetary tightening policy coming from from the Fed, is anything changing about your perspective now? Do you, you know, you're talking about not fighting the Fed. Do you do you believe that uh, um, investors should be more cautious as the Fed signals their intent to continue raising rates, for example? No, not necessarily. So, for example, in our models, we're about five percent underweight stocks. You know that we've collectively, collectively, everyone's been waiting for this recession for two, two years now, like they've been forecasting that. We've not seen that. Inflation is coming down. A big part of, in, at least in the US, the consumer price index is, is things that aren't e even really measured. It's, it's, you know, a third of CPI is, is home-related things and a big portion of home-related. Most people own their home. And so the Bureau of Labor Statistics goes out and asks people, what do you think you could rent your house for? And, and that gets added to the inflation number. So if we look at the latest inflation numbers, you know, the, the headline inflation number is coming down as oil prices fall, but that, that housing element, which is part of core inflation remains sticky because it takes people a while to realize, Hey, my house isn't appreciating 20% a year anymore. It's actually maybe has fallen back a little bit. And I don't think I can get as much rent. And so that there's a lag when you look at some of the inflation statistics, but they are coming down. But once you get into a high inflation cycle, it's hard to exit because people get used to higher inflation. And so they start to change their behavior. They start to perhaps to hoard. They start to think they can get more for rent for the house or they, they're willing to pay higher prices. So instead of changing what they buy and substituting, it's like, well, you know, everything's going up. I'm going to just buy the most expensive marinara sauce out there because it doesn't matter at this point. And so this this behavior changes is, is what central banks fear the most because then inf high inflation expectations become anchored. Now, I don't think we're going to stay at six, seven percent inflation. It, it will eventually come down to to four to three, but it it could be many years before we get two percent inflation, like like we had. And as a result, higher interest rates. And that can put pressure on some asset classes, such as real estate that, you know, bigger pockets focuses a lot on because higher interest rates means there are other asset classes that are, are, are competitive. If you can get 5% yield on your cash, why would you buy a building that has a 5% cap rate, which many, many apartments were sold at in the last three to, to, to five years? And so that's why you're seeing you know, some corrections in commercial real estate values, including multifamily housing, because now cap rates need to go up because the risk-free rate has gone up and appears that it will stay up for some time. So you 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 have a long track record as a professional asset manager. You, you use the word um, underweighting 
to refer underweight to refer refer to something related to to stock portfolio uh, earlier. Could you explain what that means and what kind of portfolio concentration your ideal portfolio looks like in today's environment? How that might have shifted from a few years ago? Sure. So when I when I say underweight, what I'm saying is that we have some static, let's say seventy percent stock, thirty percent bond portfolios that you know own a couple Vanguard funds. So that's sort of a starting point. And then we show, then we have some portfolios where we include, you know, more of a value tilt on the stock side, more small cap. And, you know, as part of that weighting, you know, we're, you know, we're maybe like 65% stocks. And, and the point uh, of mentioning it at all is not so people go out and, you know, follow our models because you know, they can, but it's not, that's not the point. The point is we're not overly bearish right now. So we're not saying that the world is going to pot that we should be completely out of stocks because you know valuations for stocks outside of the U.S. are not expensive, and there are still opportunities in the dividend dividend yields, for example. I mean, they're attractive, and so there are elements. And so when I say underweight, I'm just saying that we're not you know fully allocated. We have a little less you know more in cash, a little less in stocks, but we're not overly bearish. It's just recognizing that economic trends have deteriorated, but they haven't fallen off a cliff either. And we've been sort of waiting around for two years. And so in that environment, you don't want to get overly bearish. And, you know, as younger investors, probably not bearish at all because the time horizons are so long, 30 years or more. One of the things you talk about on your podcast is the economy. And I'm not an economist, but I'm wondering if there's anything you're currently keep any factors in the economy that you're currently keeping an eye on that those of us who might not pay so much attention should be paying a little bit more attention to. Well, I mean, we we talked about inflation, so certainly, and I don't know to what extent people pay attention to inflation, but it's certainly something we look at on a monthly basis just to understand, you know, is inflation coming down? We also spend a lot of time on the podcast talking about leading economic indi- indicators. So, you know, one, for example, and I, is purchasing manager indices or PMI. These are surveys that are done around the world. So they're just asking businesses, how, how's business? Now, how, how are your new orders? What's your inventory like? What kind of prices are you paying? What about your, your employment in terms of who you're hiring? And these things are, are adjusted to where if it's above 50, it signals an expanding economy. And if it's below 50, it basically normalizes to an economy contracting. And it's one of the, the main signals that we use just to kind of get a, an understanding where we are economically. And in, in there's the manufacturing element and the services. Now, does a typical investor need to follow that? Probably not, but it's, it's, a simple tool and it's a helpful tool because it's so comprehensive and it's one number. And so if, you know, most of the economies are above 50, then things are going well. And, and we're sort of kind of right around 50 right now, which is why it's not like in March, 2020, when the PMI data f- plummeted to 42 or, or even into the thirties, like during the great financial crisis. And so it's sort of just, just one signal. And, and we want to simplify investing as much as possible. But if someone's interested in where are we in the economy, then looking at, you know, what's known as the JP Morgan, you know, global manufacturing PMI or the global services PMI and just kind of know where that's at can be helpful. And there's, there's equivalent in the U.S. There's the U.S. PMI, you know, market or as S&P provides it as well as ISM does an analysis of that, of that. So, you know, when I, when I, when I hear, your overall position is, hey, the economy's fine right now. You know, everyone's declaring, cl- you know, a lot of people are out there declaring doom and gloom in a lot of things, but like, it seems like it's, you know, right, you know, neither good nor bad. And if anything, I'm just going to shift literally 5% of my portfolio more to debt, probably just because interest rates are higher and the returns are a little better in the debt space now, uh, in, in the bond space, um, but still keep in the market from an equity perspective. Um, I read that, first of all, is that an accurate assessment? And then second, if, if that, if so, that's bad news for real estate, right? Because I would presume in that case, you would not expect interest rates, for example, to come down in the near future. Um, if, if that's your read on the economy. Yeah. So I would say that 
So one of the things that we look at when we look at overall investment conditions, we we rate them red, green, or yellow. And you know, one out, you know, overall investment conditions, which include asset class valuations, it includes the economy or economic trends, and it includes what we call market internals. It's just a level of fear and greed in the market. And they're low neutral. So, you know, not overall, but the economy wise, it's it's been red for eight months now. And so some of this, like this PMI data hasn't fallen off the cliff, but it's not been above 50, right? So that that is some warning sign, but you're right. Because there isn't really a, a housing bubble or a debt bubble or a global pandemic where we have no idea you know, what mass casualties would be at the time in early 2020, it, no, it, it's sort of a, it's a correction an economic contraction is, you know, if we get a recession, it probably won't be very deep or very long. And the markets are so forward looking, they're already looking for the recovery in earnings. And we're actually seeing that on the earnings front, like earnings have not have fallen over the past year, but analysts are expecting earnings to improve. And so, but it also means inflation hasn't come down because we haven't had a deep recession. Uh, there's a lot of money out there and people still have a lot of savings. That they're spending, they're, you know, now they're going traveling. If you look at airline flights, everybody's going to Europe. I mean, people that have income, discretionary income, they're all traveling. And so that's not an environment where, right, that the economy is going to fall off a cliff. It, and it is an environment where interest rates could stay higher. And you're seeing sort of this slow correction in, in real estate. Only half the people are going back to work in major cities. They're not in their offices. But there was just a building that sold in, in Fort Worth at a, at a premium in the past week. Well, what kind of building was it? It's a class A building. So people are sort of upgrading to the nicer buildings. And the buildings that are suffering are those that, that you know, B class aren't as nice. And they're seeing their valuations marked down. And you're seeing uh, basically the equity holders walking away and turning the keys over to the bank. And so you have this sort of ongoing correction. But that doesn't mean everything in real estate it's bad. There's things that have done very well because uh, that's what real estate is. It's incredible. As you know, it's incredibly innovative and things change over time. But if you have the wrong building, you know, one that's not as nice in the office space, then then, yeah, you're potentially suffering there. And on, on, the, on the apartment front, you know, one of the things that concerns me is the sheer number of apartments coming online. So there's a million apartments under construction right now. And so if you own multifamily housing, such as maybe in the Southeast, Southwest, you know, there's a potential concern because you can't, those rates, those rent, rental rates are starting to fall a little bit, at least stagnate because of the, the ongoing supply. You've mentioned a couple of reports and there's reports that come out every month or every quarter, the consumer price index, the inflation, the jobs report, the GDP, the non-farm payroll, the consumer confidence. Which reports are really important to pay attention to for the average investor and which ones should they just kind of gloss over when the radio announcer starts reading them off? The average investor. You know, the average investor, they could The probably, rest of us. The, the rest, rest of us, us <laughs> could probably ignore it, right? Because they can buy their target date funds or their index funds and just focus on saving and increasing their income. Oh, one is focused on, you know, is interested in the economy than the two that I mentioned, the PMI surveys and you know, the, the consumer price index. You know, part of it is just understanding the narrative. And so we're not, we don't forecast. So we're not here predicting the economy is going into recession. We just want to know what the market's temperature is. So we know if we should get out of the way. And the reality is you hardly ever have to get out of the way. Like 2008 doesn't come very often in a global. Now we've had two. We had 2008 and we've had a global pandemic, but it's infrequent. And so it's helpful to know where we stand. I think investors should probably be more focused on is the market expensive or not, as opposed to trying to figure out whether we're going to have a recession or not. And so one of the things that we have recommended for a number of years is to, is to have less in the U.S. stock market because the U.S. stock market is so expensive relative to its average. Whereas the non-U.S., which 
is has much higher dividend yields of three percent. So they're they're generating more cash. The earnings growth of non-U.S. versus U.S. isn't that different, and the valuations are cheaper. And so if if think about on a real estate basis, would you rather have a building that has a higher cash yield that has comparable you know rental growth to a a lower cash yielding building, but it's also cheaper. That's where you want to invest. And it's it works the same way for the stock market. We can look at the cash flow or is the cash, you know, how fast is that cash flow growing in terms of earnings? And what are we paying for that cash flow in terms of in terms of the price to earnings ratio? Saving for a down payment, a wedding, or just looking for extra money to invest? Monarch Money turns your budgeting woes into wins. That's why the Wall Street Journal named it the best budgeting app overall. Monarch is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, set goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash pockets. Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it easy to manage your money like a pro. Add a partner or family member to your account for no extra cost, so combined finances become a breeze. Customize your budgets and notifications, set up automatic rules for transactions, and more. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash pockets. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash pockets for your extended 30-day free trial. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that a long time ago, before I ever started my real estate business, I turned one of my first primary residences into an Airbnb? And that's the extra income that I needed from Airbnb that gave me the confidence to go out and work for myself and eventually quit my 9-to-5 job. And now I have dozens of Airbnbs all over the country. I've even partnered up with the old David Green on a recent property in Scottsdale to take our portfolio to the next level. And of course, we host it on Airbnb. But you don't need to be a full-time real estate investor to start on Airbnb. As a matter of fact, I was self-managing 10 properties while working my 9-to-5 job, so I know anybody can do it. Think about it this way. You're looking for extra income and going on a vacation. Wouldn't it be great to rent out your space and let your property pay for itself while you're gone? I did this one time. I pitched my wife and my roommate because we were house hacking on the idea of renting out our home, and it paid for all of our expenses on a trip to Mexico City. So go and give it a try. It might just change your life just like it did mine. And I really do mean that. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. When it comes to financial guidance, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When Mindy and I want to upgrade our wallets, we turn to NerdWallet. Scott's right. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, Mindy and I were paying for vacations in cash, missing out on miles, and not even knowing what we're leaving on the table. But now we're flying through the skies for free, thanks to our new cards with more miles and upgrades than ever. So if you want more travel rewards, hotel upgrades, or airport lounge access, no matter where you go next, let NerdWallet help you make it happen with a killer travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at NerdWallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms of each credit card issuer apply. Real estate investing is great, but for some, the tenant phone calls and clogged toilets aren't all that attractive. So how do you invest in real estate without getting your hands dirty? Invest for truly passive income with Pine Financial Group. Pine's mortgage fund offers an 8% preferred return and an attractive profit split with 70% of profits going to the investors. You'll earn passive income by participating in lending to house flippers. And it's secure because senior lien holders, that's you, get paid first. Their rigorous underwriting process and the backing of the physical asset provide additional security in case of borrower default. Plus, by investing with Pine Financial Group, you contribute to the revitalization of communities by redirecting your funds from Wall Street to Main Street, supporting local economies, and generating profits simultaneously. This investment is reserved for accredited investors, but if you are not accredited, Pine Financial has options for you too. Don't miss this opportunity to back Main Street over Wall Street and start earning passive real estate income. Learn more about investing with Pine at pinefinancialgroup.com BP. That's pinefinancialgroup.com BP. Okay, you said non-U.S. 
market. And that made me think of Scott and his uber successful investment in a Chinese juice company a couple of years ago, where I believe his current holding value is $0. So which non-US markets are you uh, more favorably leaning towards? And which would you say, eh, maybe not? Well, when I say non-US, I'm I'm saying buy all of it. But so buy a, you can buy a world XUS ETF so that has thousands and thousands of companies in it. Because one of the, so we don't purchase, we don't recommend individual stocks. Like I don't invest in individual stocks because when you, you know, it's easy to, it's easier to invest in an individual building, right? Because it's appraisal base, you can get comparables. When you're investing in an individual stock, you're competing against Wall Street. You're competing against all these analysts that are looking at the company, coming up with earnings estimates. And so when you buy an individual stock, you're saying, first off, the price is wrong, that everyone else is wrong. The consensus that's buying and selling the stock and estimating earnings is wrong. And so in order for the stock to do well, it's got to do better than what everybody expects. It has a surprise to the upside. And this is critical when it comes to, to stock investing, individual stocks, because we don't have the rest of us an informational edge to say, no, the market's wrong. All the investors are wrong. Netflix is going to do better than everybody th expects. And so my stock will outperform the S&P 500 because it's going to do better than everyone expects, which is why if you buy an exchange traded fund or an index fund that has hundreds of uh, thousands of holdings, what you'll see is some will do worse than expected and their stocks will fall, but some will do better than expected and those cancel out. So at the end of the day, what drives the returns of an ETF is, is the dividend yield, the cash and the earnings growth in aggregate, which is tied to the growth of the economy and whether the, the overall stock market gets more expensive or cheaper over time, which is why in investing in a non-US exchange traded fund, such as something at Vanguard, it has a higher dividend yield. It has a 3% dividend yield versus 1.5% for the US stock market. So right there, you have a 1.5% advantage compared to US stocks. And if the earnings grow 5 to 6% per year over the next decade, you can add those two. You know, a 3% return, dividend yield plus 6% earnings growth, that's a 9% return for non-U.S. stocks. Whereas if U.S. stocks has a 1.5% dividend yield and 6% earnings growth, that's 7.5% expected return. But then we're sitting here with price to earnings ratios for U.S. stocks around 22, whereas they're 15, the P.E. for non-U.S., so it, it's much cheaper. And, and that's what I'm saying is don't figure out which juice company to buy overseas or China. Just buy the overall market and have some developed markets, have some Europe, have some Asia, have some emerging markets. And you can do a one ETF and then then you're good. So how, you know, how should I think about this asset? I, I love this discussion. I haven't really uh, considered this. I'm in all my, my index fund portfolio is essentially all S&P 500 um, stocks, which are heavily U.S. based here. I have a two-part question here. Um, next one: um, What would you say? How, how, uh, I read recently that the in 2023 year-to-date returns for the S and P 500 or the, the U.S. stock market. Um, I can't remember which one, but basically they were completely inflated up to 15% by the fangs. So these are Facebook, uh, Alphabet, um, Amazon, uh, and a couple of those other guys. And those return, the positive returns from those five companies were basically lifting the, 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 the market from a negative 2% return, excluding them to a 15% return. How does that factor into your thinking first? And then second, how would you kind of develop a portfolio thesis for this external? Like how much should I put in international funds, excluding the U.S.? How much should I put in the U.S.? How should I think about that problem? So the, the global stock market. So if we wait, if we rate or rank all the companies by size, 60% of the, of the global stock market is US, 40% is, is non-US. So if you just want to, if you just want to be equal to the market, you know, what is, you know, the consensus of the market, the size, 
you should have 40% of your stock allocation in non-US. So when you're we're investing 100% in US, you're right. You're because it is size weighted and because of the whole AI extravaganza that everybody is excited about that which we can talk about uh if you would like. You're right. You you have these top 5 holdings that have driven the market. The if we look at the S&P on an equal weighted basis, so every stock is equal, it's it's returned about 5% year to date. And if and if somebody's really aggressive, it's like I just I got a question the other day from one of our members members and they asked why not just the Nasdaq. So the Nasdaq 100. You know, the Nasdaq 100 is the top 100 US stocks. Well, it's 30% in those top 5 companies. And the problem with having such a big weight in the top five companies is again, they their prices reflect the consensus. And so invariably when a company disappoints, especially when they're very expensive, then they 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 fall. And you'd see a change in the top five companies over time. And so having 40% outside the US would be a good starting point. And and then you could have some more, for example, you can buy more dividend yielding ETFs, right? And they're not going to have the big allocation to those top five companies. But it also means in a year like this year that that portfolio isn't going to do as well. And that stinks when it comes to investing because there's always something doing better and that gets all the press, et cetera. But, and that's why we like to, to come back and just focus on principles. The principle is diversify as much as possible recognize that something will always be the hot thing and maybe we have a little bit in it, but ultimately focus just like you do with real estate. What's the cash flow, the dividend yield for stocks or the interest income for bonds? You know, is that cash flow growing and what are you paying for that? I, I love it. Um, uh, I love the principles first focus with this. The last 10 years I started investing when I was, you know, 21, 22 years old and bond rates were like, essentially close to zero and, and declining to, to zero over that, that decade. That was the first decade of my, my life investing. So I never had any allocation to bonds until recently. And the reason I'm changing that personally is because of the rising interest rate environment. I'm like, I'm liking short-term debt um, because I don't know how interest rates are going to move. and I don't want to have a lot of all, you know, subjectivity to that. When you think about the 35% weighting, the slight change you made to, to a potential portfolio to weight a little bit more towards debt, how, how should someone think about getting into that market? Should they be factoring in things like the time horizon on, on the underlying debt? Are there ETFs that people should look into or think about? Well, right now, what, first off, make sure your cash is invested. So it's just not sitting there earning whatever banks pay nowadays, right? I, I think we have a credit union that looked and it's I think it, they raised it to 0.2% is what they were paying on, on at a credit union. So you can, you can buy a money market mutual fund, which is a, a fund that basically at this point is investing most of their assets at the Federal Reserve is what they're getting and they're getting four or 5%. So that's the starting point. The other interesting area right now, which is the first time in a decade, you mentioned a decade for the first time in a decade, it actually makes sense to purchase Treasury inflation protection securities. So these are inflation protected bonds. Anyone can go to Treasury Direct if you're a US investor and you can purchase the latest five-year tips. It, it is a bond that is yielding close to 2%. So that's your real rate. And then you get inflation on top of that. And you can hold it for five years and you're going to earn 2% plus whatever the rate of inflation is. And it's, it's completely safe. And you don't have to worry about, you know, which is safer than investing in a, like a tips ETF, because for the, the exact reasons you point out, Scott, if, if interest rates go up, you get volatility because the value of that ETF can go down. But if you buy an individual treasury inflation protection security and you hold it in to maturity, you lock in that yield, that 2% yield plus the rate of inflation. And, and people can figure out tips are not that hard to figure out. You, or treasury direct. You just, it's a government bond that's protected against inflation and hold one for five years, you know, and buy one of the newly issued ones. They do an auction about every month and you just say, I want to buy whatever, $20,000 or $10,000 of the latest tips and it'll take your money and you'll, you'll have it on your, your treasury direct account. 
Okay. So you are, you guys are starting to get into some pretty complicated things. And I've got friends that are involved in complicated things. And one of the things that I really loved about your last visit with us, David, was uh, when you spoke, you said, uh, the first thing you should ask yourself is whenever you're investing in anything, you should be able to answer the question, what is it? This is a this is a quote that I copied from our last transcript. You should be able to describe in detail if you were talking to a friend. I had a college client, one of my first endowment clients. He said to me, I'm not comfortable investing in anything that I cannot explain to somebody that's not on our investment committee. So if I can't explain it, then we shouldn't invest in it. What would you say to somebody who is overwhelmed by investing, but keeps hearing that you should be investing? Because I, I, yes, you should invest. You should invest in the stock market. I have a huge uh, love of the stock market. I have huge support for the stock market. I truly believe in the future of the American economy and the American stock market going forward. I don't know anything about uh, foreign stocks. I don't invest in anything foreign, although now I'm going to start doing research. So thanks for that rabbit hole you're sending me down, David. Uh, but what would you give it? What advice would you give to somebody who is feeling overwhelmed by all of the things that we're discussing at maybe a higher level or things that their friends are discussing? Well, the the simplest is, is what I mentioned earlier. So most people have a 401k plan, with their employer, or maybe they don't. And so they can open an account at Vanguard and they can decide which year they hope to retire. And they can buy a target date fund, the 2040 fund, for example. And the Vanguard will, will do all that. They'll, they'll have an allocation to stocks. They'll have an allocation to bonds and they'll have an allocation to both US and non-US. And so you don't have to, to worry about it. Now, granted, we're, we're talking, we've talked about tips. We've talked about PMI, but I'm assuming that the individuals that listen to your podcast are interested in, you know, money and investing. And so, but for typical people, if they could just get their 401k match and invest in a target date fund and go on with their lives. And because the biggest thing is, you know, advance their career and figure out how can I save 10 to 20% of my income or whatever, so that ultimately they can benefit from the compounding of uh, these cash flows over time, and especially on a tax deferred basis, if you're in a in a 401k, and, and that's the starting point. And for many people, that's the ending point. That that's enough. Like focus on making more money in your career and making you know spending time with your family and friends, and don't feel like you have to invest in the latest cryptocurrency or you need to be adjusting your allocation, because most people don't. And it's just some of us that enjoy doing it. And they, you know, especially if you approach retirement, they want to, you know, eke out a little more yield or whatever. But for, for many of us, they don't, you don't have to. I love that. Straight from David Stein, from Money for the Rest of Us mouth, you don't have to invest in absolutely everything. And by the way, that was the answer I was looking for, David. I knew you were going to, I knew you were going to come through. <laughs> so David, for those who are a little bit, you know, that a little bit more advanced than that, you know, and are looking to retire early in particular, um, what do you think is enough these days to retire? We did an episode uh, last week called Live Like You're Already Retired. And so the first thing is try not to retire. So you can quit your job, but like I quit my job 10 years ago, 11 years ago now. And you know, yes, I could have retired and be frugal and not work again. Well, I'd be more than frugal. But not spend as much as I want. And retirement is a huge mental shift. If you're really going to live on your, on your portfolio, that's hard because if you just spent 20 years collecting income from pay and then not, it, it can really mess with your mind. And so I think most people should figure out a way that, yeah, I'm going to live some on my portfolio. But I'm also going to figure out a way to generate other income, be it a side project, a part-time job, because the reality is the 4% rule is a good starting point, but there are some challenges with it because there are many countries where the 4%, it depends on what the stock market does. Like if the stock market returns 8 9% per year, yeah, 4% would be fine. But 
if you were in Japan in the late 80s and retired and wanted to use the 4% rule, you've run out of money already because their stock market didn't support it. And, you know, there's been studies that look at, well, maybe it's 3%. Like I would be more comfortable with 3% rule because again, what you're trying to do is sort of like endowment finance. Like, so your, your spending rate plus inflation to not run out of money, the spending rate plus inflation, that's what you need to earn. So if inflation, if you're using the 4% rule and inflation is 3%, then that means your portfolio has to earn 7% to never have to run out of money. Now, the problem is people are going to die, but it's figuring out, well, what is that sort of that glide path? How much can I spend for a 40-year retirement? And when I quit in my mid-40s, I couldn't imagine. Like, how, how do you plan for 50 years? And what I realized is I don't. I just have to make it one year at a time. So did my net worth grow after spending, did it at least grow by the rate of inflation? And if you can grow your net worth through your investment income, through your outside work, and it keeps growing, to me, that's a much safer place to be if you're in your 40s retiring or in your 50s. Now, when if you're in your 70s or 80s and you really are done, then, then you could, there's many things you could do, but one would be, and I'll do it if I'm in my 70s, I'll buy an immediate annuity which basically will pay me income for life and let the insurance company worry about investing it. Because I, if somebody's 70 right now, they can take, they'll get 8% on their portfolio. So $100,000, they would get 8% of that every year. Um, so no, that's $8,000 right there. So if you have more than that, then you're going to get more of that. So, But you get that and that's one way to do it. And most people that don't understand investing should be looking closer at immediate annuities. Because Mindy, your question earlier, like if people that are overwhelmed by investing and then they retire and they're, and they're feeling like, okay, now I have this nest egg that has to sustain me to, to the rest of my life. That's an incredibly overwhelming problem. That's way more overwhelming than saving for retirement when you actually have a paycheck. But when you don't have one, like consider investing in you know an annuity for a portion of it if you don't have a traditional pension plan or defined benefit plan. And this is why I'm so passionate about just teaching people to start investing. And you know the index fund is what we are really, really passionate about here because you just set it and forget it. Choose the index fund and just put money into it every single month or quarter, like whatever your your uh, however frequent you have made your uh, decision to invest in. But you don't have to know everything. You don't have to be investing in the latest and greatest. It broke my heart to see all of those GameStop and AMC investors uh, when Robinhood was doing all of that. They didn't know what they were doing. They were jumping on a bandwagon. They were throwing in money that they couldn't afford to lose. And then Robinhood wouldn't let them sell and all of a sudden they lost everything that they had put in or they put in, you know, not the people in the beginning, but the people who started jumping in on the bandwagon or the, the crypto people, you know, they buy at 60,000 thinking that, that it was going to continue to go up and then it dropped. And I don't even know what crypto is at right now because I have zero dollars in that. But, you know, just the people who are making uninformed choices about their investing, I can understand why they're doing it, but it just really makes me feel sad when I see people who have lost everything or lost so much because they didn't know what they were doing. And then to to hear those stories on the news and see other people say, oh, well, I don't want to lose it. So I'm just not going to invest at all. I'm like, but the stock market's different if you invest in a different way. But how do you? All right. And so, but again, it's a, it's not we can say index funds and then people want to know which index fund. And I, I think there's a, there's a base level of knowledge. If you can do target date funds. There's a reason why target date funds have both U.S. and non-U.S. index funds in that. And so at a minimum, people should have, they could own VT, for example, which is a Vanguard total world stock market ETF. So it has U.S. and non-U.S. because we don't, we don't want to have home country bias. If you're Canadian, 
Should you have 90% of your stock exposure to Canadian stocks? No. But as, as you know, many U.S. investors, they figure, well, you know, Pepsi's around the world. There is a benefit to global diversification because there is no given that the U.S. stock market will continue to outperform indefinitely, definitely like it has the past decade, especially given it's more expensive than the rest of the world. So at least Globally diversified index funds would be the way to go. So I, I have two two kind of reactions to what you, you said there. First, the the four percent rule and the three percent commentary. I think there's a lot of folks out there that would disagree with the hey, I, you may want to go down to the three percent and cite a large body of research around the four percent rule. And I would just want to comment that uh, while there's a lot of research on the four percent rule, a lot of debate about what is the right number here. The fact of the matter is that of the hundreds of people I've now met that are to consider themselves financially independent in no personally, um, none of them, or maybe one couple out of that entire crew actually is retired and does not earn other additional income on a true 4% rule portfolio. So there's the theory, which I think a lot of people would argue with you, David, and say is very sound. And there's the practice, which I think you were alluding to as well. Are you going to be like actually comfortable on this of nobody actually retiring on just that 4% rule without a few aces in the hole? be it a pension, a large cash position, a real estate portfolio on top of that, a small business or whatever uh, out there. Well, right. I mean, I mean, the 4% rule is a good starting point. I was, uh, you know, I mentioned 3%. If that was right, the entire, like if I wasn't going to change throughout my entire retirement, but that's the beauty of retirement. We can change how much we spend each year. So if we start out the 4% rule, and the market falls 10% per year for three years to where suddenly, oh, we're now spending 8% of our portfolio. And it's only going to last 20 years at that rate. Then we need to adjust. And so I, yeah, I agree with you. I think, Scott, we need the flexibility to adjust the rules. We just don't want to naively say 4% it. And no matter what, I'm going to, because if you model it out, with a 4% rule, there's, you know, if you do a Monte Carlo simulation, there's about a 10% risk of running out of, mon out of money during retirement. So who does anything with a 10% risk of ruin? And just like, I'm just going to keep going until I'm ruined. We don't do that. We adapt and adjust so that we're not ruined. And that's what most retirees do. They're flexible. They can adjust. So start with a 4% rule. And be willing to adjust if if the market doesn't support it, and maybe you can spend more than that if we get you know an incredibly you know, good markets for the next decade. The other thing I wanted to react to is the comment you made around annuities. So you're one of the most sophisticated investors we talked to on Bigger Pockets Money. You managed you know twenty billion dollars in assets at one point in your career, and have these great thoughts. You know, until probably the last month or two, uh, I would have kind of considered an annuity a dirty word, a salesy word that has no no place on the the bigger pockets money podcast probably incorrectly uh, I read a book recently called uh, uh, die with zero by Bill Perkins and he kind of talked about those things uh, as well and there's a certain you know uh, 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 attraction I think of annuities especially with rising interest rates and the rising you know you, I think you literally can now go out and get an eight and a half percent annuity um, for example um, you tape it into Google and you'll be able to find some of those things. You know, what would you say to people who kind of share that same viewpoint that I might have had a year, a month or two ago about annuities being a complete waste of time and a ripoff uh, in that context? Have recent events changed or should their thinking have been different all along around annuities um, and they're just a useful tool uh, and have been for a long time? Well, they have been for a long time, but I was like you. So I, in 2008, during the great financial crisis, we... We manage money for financial planners. So, and I went to Baltimore, one of our financial planner clients, and they had their, they had their basically retirees come in and, and I presented to them and they were literally shell shocked. And because they had stock exposure and like we didn't choose the allocation for them, but we were managing the underlying assets. And in many cases, they were, had lost 30 to 40% of their assets. And I remember, looking at them and seeing the fear in their eyes and trying to alleviate it. But I walked away. It's like, there's got to be a better way. Like, 
who gambles their retirement on whether the stock market's going to be up or not? And, and so that I started going to a number of insurance conferences like, well, there's got to be a solution. And the reality is it's annuities because the benefit and, and on, there's all kinds of annuities and there are bad annuities and there are better annuities or good annuities. So an immediate annuity is the one I was referring to is and I've seen this with family members where they're incredibly worried about investing and they take couple hundred thousand dollars and they buy an annuity from a highly rated company like New York Life and then it pays them a check every month for the rest of their life. And that can be so peace giving to an investor that they don't have to worry about that. And the reason why annuities can pay the 8% is because it's an annuitant pool. Annuities have been around for millennia because with an immediate annuity, if you give the principal to them, and then if you die within the first five years, you can get some of it back. But eventually it gets to the point where some of the people die and the insurance company then has their money and can pay the people that live to be into their mid nineties. And so it takes out that longevity risk that for, and it doesn't have to be all your portfolio, but a portion of the portfolio should be annuitized. And for most people, that's what it used to be because you had a pension. And along with Social Security. And so it's a way to take some money off the table and get a check for the rest of your life and know it's going to be there. And then you can use the other part of your portfolio to basically meet, you know, increased expenses due to inflation. And they're, they're, a, great, they're a great tool. They've been around for years, but most people don't, aren't aware of them because they don't want to lose that control. It's like, uh, why would I give an insurance company half my money? Well, you would because they're pooling it with other people and you might live to your mid-90s. And most states have insurance pools in case the annuity company goes under and you, and you buy from an insurance company like New York Life that's been around for several hundred years or at least over 100 years. And it, it's a way – it's just a tool. It's one tool of many that can be used in retirement. Yeah, and, and one other point that I think uh, you know Bill Perkins w w would make or made in, in, in Die With Zero – uh, is this concept of many investors have a lot of trouble. Like, let's say you have a million dollars. You're gonna have a lot of trouble spending 8% of that million, $80,000. If it's from, if it's invested in your investment portfolio, because of the, the rational way you'd think about, um, spending that money, you wouldn't spend the target return. You're going to spend something considerably lower than that. If you have an annuity, you're gonna spend all of it. Right. Uh, or, or you're much more likely to spend a bigger chunk of it and feel, feel very good about that spending, um, to a degree. So there was kind of a psychological benefit of it in a way that I had never really fully grasped. I, I have not owned any annuities and I'm not sure I, I actually will, but I am no longer kind of like they're a dirty word that we're going to, you know, uh, stay away from here on BP money. Cause I think that there's some valid use cases, uh, for that point and the ones that you brought up. Well, you shouldn't. I mean, at your age, you should not have an annuity. You buy an annuity when you're 70 or 65 and you're tired of investing in real estate or you're tired or whatever, right? And you just want to basically lock in an income stream for your rest of your life, which allows you, as you point out, to potentially be more aggressive with the rest of your portfolio because you don't have that, that fear, like I can't spend my money because it's all dependent on the stock market. Well, if I know that I have social security and I have an annuity and whatever, I get some rent from a building, then maybe I can go buy a flyer, a juice company, or a crypto, you know, just or something interesting just for fun because I'm not so fearful that I'll lose all my money because potentially you only lose a part of it, the part that you speculated on. Is there an age minimum that you can start uh, collecting on your annuity? No, you can do it at any age, but the way that the math works, because they're paying they're paying the payment for, again, this is immediate annuity. So this is separate from variable annuities or fixed annuities. This is a straight up income for life, immediate annuity, single premium. So you pay the premium once and then you start collecting the income. So the older you are, the higher the payment because your life expectancy is going down. So if you're, you're out, you know, if you're 40, you're buying an immediate annuity, it's going to be a much lower payment because your life expectancy is 50 years. And so. The two drivers of annuity payments are life expectancy and an interest rate. So as interest rates have gone up, annuity payments have also gone up. So if you're retired at you know 60 or 70, 
now's a great time to buy an annuity because interest rates are very high. And so annuity payouts are high, higher than they were five to seven years ago. Awesome. Well, I think we should do an episode at some point on annuities, Mindy, um, because I think that they're an interesting topic and a tool that we really haven't covered uh, too much in, in in the past. And that I think is a valuable one for especially our older listeners um, that are nearing retirement age and can benefit from potentially much higher payments. So sounds like yet another good reason to, um, you know, try to do everything you can to take care of your, 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 your health here as well, uh, because you're going to get a better financial return on the annuity. Oh, right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, if you're able to live longer. So, uh, lots of, lots of interesting things here. And again, it's something, a, a world I got to wrap my mind around and learn more about. I absolutely agree that we should do an episode on that. I was thinking of the way that Joe Salcihai explained uh, life insurance and whole life versus term life. And when I asked him which one was better in that episode, he's like, well, it, it isn't one is better than the other. It depends on what you need. And like Scott, I have always thought that annuity is a four letter word. Why would you invest in an annuity? That's silly. But the way you described it, David, was uh, made me rethink it. Yeah, you should do an, do an episode on it. It, uh, I appreciate your information. That was very helpful. David, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Are there any other parting thoughts you'd like to leave us with before we adjourn here? No, I I, I think the theme is that investing doesn't have to be complicated, that there are tools that we can use, target date fund, index funds, global diversification, immediate annuities when when you get of age, that it doesn't have to be in real estate if you want to do that, or even, you know, we didn't talk about equity REITs, which is a way to simple way to invest in, in commercial real estate. And, and those are tools that are out there that we can use, use and not feel overwhelmed. Awesome. David, where can people find you online? So our, our website uh, is at moneyfortherestofus.com. We also have a, a new project we're working on at assetcamp.com. And then I'm um, occasionally on, well, at JD Stein on Twitter, but you know, I haven't spent a whole lot of time with social media. You can also find me on LinkedIn. You can reach out there. Wonderful. David, thank you so much for your time today. And we will talk to you soon. Uh, thanks for having me. Okay, Scott, that was so much fun. First of all, David is such a good teacher. I love the way that you can throw any question at him and he can smoothly answer it. I am very excited about learning more about annuities and also that global ETF thing he was talking about. I have a new deep dive to do. Yeah. I mean, immediately after the conversation, I Googled index funds that exclude US stocks and was able to find a few, including from Vanguard, that I'm, I'm really interested in. Um, you know, I'm not going to stop investing in US stocks, but I might add more of that international exposure to my portfolio in the context of my stock portfolio following this conversation. So I think it was just a really good thing. Probably should have done it years ago, frankly, um, because uh, it's probably just best practice, but something that I'd been ignoring personally in my portfolio and we'll, we'll probably rectify in the near future. Yeah, same. I'm going to have a big old conversation with Carl after he listens to this episode and see what uh, allocations we're going to, what allocation changes we're going to make to our portfolio. Yeah. So so two easy ways to do that. If you're brand new, you could go with a total international index fund. You can Google those and find out more about them. We're not going to recommend specific things um, for obvious reasons. Um, or you can Google uh, for index funds that exclude um, the U.S. stock market. And if you already have a lot of U.S. stock exposure. So it'd be two simple ways um, to begin uh uh, 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 thinking about if you're, if you're interested in international stock exposure, we're not recommending or not recommending that. That's just a, uh, uh, a, a path for you to go down, uh, and explore if you'd like to, um, look at those things after this podcast. That was very helpful, Scott. Thanks for sharing that. All right. Should we get out of here? Let's do it. That wraps up this episode of the Bigger Pockets Money podcast. He is Scott Trench and I am Mindy Jensen saying time to scoot little newt. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five star review on Spotify or Apple. And if you're looking for even more money content, feel free to visit our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash biggerpocketsmoney. Bigger Pockets Money was created by Mindy Jensen and Scott Trench. Produced by Kaylin Bennett. Editing by Exodus Media. Copywriting by Nate Weintraub. Lastly, a big thank you to the Bigger Pockets team for making this show possible. The market is changing and finding your way can be tricky. Rates shift, headlines whirl, but your goal hasn't changed. You want financial freedom, and the best investors know it's not about timing the market, it's about time in the market. 
If you're ready to get into real estate investing or take it to the next level, finding an investor-friendly agent is your next step. With the BiggerPockets Agent Finder, you can find the right agent in minutes. Just head to biggerpockets.com slash deals, enter a few details about what and where you want to buy, and boom, instantly matched with an investor-friendly agent who fits the bill. These local market experts can help you navigate the neighborhoods, analyze the numbers, and take action with confidence once and for all. This free resource is only available at biggerpockets.com slash deals. Get an agent, get the deal, and get closer to financial freedom at biggerpockets.com slash deals. That's biggerpockets.com slash deals to find your investor-friendly agent today. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all host and participant opinions are their own. Investment in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. Bigger Pockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.